Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? I know we've been competing this week to see who could come up with the best what's big in Japan thing, but I actually (laughs) have saved one for you. And, And did you know that adult adoption is actually a pretty big thing in Japan? In fact, most adoptions in Japan are adult adoptions. So I... I don't think I even know what that means exactly. Well, you know, sometimes it has to do with inheritance. So say you've got a business owner who wants to keep his business in the family, but I don't know, maybe he thinks his kids are too lazy or not smart enough to take it over. (laughs) So the owner might select an executive from that company and just adopt them, you know, like to keep the business in the family. (laughs) That's pretty funny. I I mean... I have heard of people joking about adopting college grads so that you have someone to take care of you, you know, when you're older. But uh, I mean, this is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, it is. Well, and, and, and sometimes it's also just like this kick in the pants that the business owner's kids need to start working harder. And it gets complicated, I guess, with this new sibling rivalry. But, you know, Japan's such a fascinating place. And we thought we'd just take a deeper dive into some of the customs and culture you might not usually hear about. So let's dig in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, super focused on his latest origami creation. That's our (laughs) friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. So so what's he working on, Mango? I was trying to look. Is that that a bear? I think it's actually a sailboat. Oh, okay. Well, it's a very interesting sailboat. Keep it up, (laughs) Tristan. It's looking really good. All right. Well, today's show is all about Japanese society and culture. But rather than taking a deep dive into the nation's long history or maybe focusing on a single aspect of its culture, we're going to share some of the strangest, most surprising things that we recently learned about Japan. So where do you think we should start, Mango? Well, I mean, something I think we should address up front is this incredible balancing act that Japan does between the past and the present. All right. So give me an example of what you're what you're talking about. 
Well, one simple example is that their smartphones are actually waterproof. And this has existed in Japan for over a decade at this point. Really? I feel like that's such a recent technology here in the U.S. Like all the commercials last year were so focused on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. And I actually saw this guy at the beach last summer and he kept accidentally dropping his phone in the water. Then like wiping it off and taking a picture. And I guess he was doing it to like impress the women around him or like some of the other people he was with. And at first I was kind of impressed too. But after like the third or fourth time he dropped it, I was just rooting for the ocean to take that phone away from him. Oh, no kidding. I would have done the same. (laughs) But back to Japan. So the first waterproof smartphone rolled out way back in 2005. And according to a number of electronics companies, the reason waterproofing was introduced so early is that manufacturers quickly learned that Japanese consumers were fond of taking phones into the shower or bathtub with them. Oh, wow. You know, you always hear about screen addiction and how people are finding it increasingly harder to disconnect from their phones. And this kind of feels like the extreme of that. Exactly. So that's what I thought it was at first, too, especially when you hear like these reports of gamers and how addicted they are to video games. But that's not actually what's going on there. So waterproofing is really the industry standard in Japan. 90 to 95 percent of all smartphones sold in the country are waterproof, and it's because of Japanese tradition. So as you might have heard, bath time is really important in Japan, like public bathhouses called Sento. They've been pillars of Japanese society pretty much from the start. And thanks to the country's many volcanoes, they also have like, I want to say it's like 20,000 natural hot springs around the country for people to soak in. Wow. And are there traditions around these or what? Yeah, I mean, partially it's just the health benefits, right? Like the warm water improves circulation and it relieves stiff joints. But there's also the social intimacy that comes from sharing a bath, you know, with other members of your community. So today, most Japanese people still take frequent hot baths as a way to unwind. And the waterproofing was basically a compromise to bridge the old traditions with the new ones. Basically, most Japanese citizens were on board with having this new type of technology, you know, something that you carry around with you all the time, as long as they could take them into the tub with them. That's pretty interesting. And you know, that's something I actually came across while doing my research. And that's the idea of big companies having to bend to old Japan, you know, and and find a way to operate within that existing social framework. So how do you mean exactly? Well, one thing is that Japan places a high value on hospitality. And that extends to companies, not just individuals. So, you know, there's this expectation among Japanese consumers that companies are going to go above and beyond just to accommodate them and any of their needs. And there's a great example of this, and that's the Japanese auto industry. So according to the country's Automobile Dealers Association, Japanese brands account for nearly 90% of the cars sold there in Japan. And all of that's thanks to the hospitality services? Well, it actually is a big part of it, yeah. You know, the, the relationship between car dealers and their customers is very different in Japan than it is here. And as a result of that, Japanese consumers are used to this high level of service that American dealerships have yet to really invest in, either at home or even over there. Now, The Atlantic did an article about this last year, and it included this great description of a typical car buying experience in Tokyo, and it really kind of explains how deep this custom goes. So the author of the story writes, The last time Shujiro Urata wanted to buy a car in Japan, his phone happened to ring. It was the local Toyota dealer on the phone asking him if he was thinking about buying a new car. And so he replied in the affirmative, and the dealer and a co-worker showed up at Arata's doorstep an hour later with two demo cars, which Arata and his wife test drove around the neighborhood. The Arata's decided to buy a car from this dealer. The dealer also handles their car insurance, coming to their home whenever the insurance contract needs to be renewed. The Arata's bring in their car to the dealer every few weeks for a free car wash. Huh. 
where they hang out and talk to the employees who've kind of become their friends. Japanese customers also expect to receive services like free maintenance from their dealers after they buy their cars. When their cars need a checkup, the dealer comes and picks them up, does work on them, and then returns them. I mean, I kind of want that service, right? It's insane. But is that why American car companies haven't taken off there, like because of that service element? It's a bigger part of it than you think. And these added services are just too costly and, I don't know, maybe complicated for American car companies to even bother with. In fact, Ford pulled out of the Japanese market altogether back in 2016. That's because they'd sold like 5,000 cars or so on average in any given year then. And General Motors now has fewer than 30 dealerships in all of Japan. Now, all of this despite the fact that Japan is actually the third largest auto market in the world behind, of course, the U.S. and China. Oh, that's crazy. I had no idea it was that big. So is this just a U.S. thing? Like, is it a problem for the U.S. or or is this a problem for other manufacturers around the world as well? Well, not exactly. I mean, European car dealers and, and Mercedes and BMW in particular, they've made significant strides in the Japanese market over the past few years. And as you might expect, they pulled this off by embracing this idea of hospitality. Now, BMW spent like $700 million updating its dealer network in Japan back in 2016. And this was also that customers are treated to a lot of the same services and perks that they're used to there. And the company's sales are actually on the rise as a result of this. So I've got to say, I'm pretty envious. And it's not just the service. Like, I kind of admire how the culture makes huge companies work for them. I mean, Mm -hmm. can you imagine getting that kind of service from like your cable bill provider or your cell phone provider? Yeah, and it's pretty incredible. So the American cars haven't been a hit with the Japanese, but there is at least one American export that they have taken to, and that's baseball. Now, Japan has not one but two professional baseball leagues, as well as countless high school and university leagues across the country. So while sumo wrestling might be the sport most closely associated with Japan, baseball is actually the most popular by far. And it's watched and played by more people in Japan than any other sport. Which is insane. So I I knew Japan loved baseball, but I didn't think it had gotten that big. And I do want to hear about it, but I can't pass up the chance to share one of my all-time favorite sumo facts, which I jotted down in my margins with an asterisk in my notes. (laughs) I think I have a feeling I know which one this one is. Is this the uh, the crying babies thing, Mango? Uh, Spoiler alert. (laughs) But yeah, I've got to share it. So for listeners, there's this 400-year-old ceremony in Japan where once a year, parents bring their infants to shrines so that sumo wrestlers can try to make them cry. It's amazing. (laughs) But the ceremony is part of the Nakizumo Festival, and it's believed to bring good health to the baby and help ward off evil spirits. Well, I feel like maybe I blocked this out because I, I don't remember, but, but how do the wrestlers try to make them cry again? Well, each wrestler takes a baby and ideally gets the kid to ball just by kind of bouncing them up and down in the sumo ring. But everyone has their own technique. So like a wrestler might make funny faces or even growl at the baby a little bit. And then <laughs> after a few seconds, if nothing's worked, a referee will actually step in wearing a traditional face mask, and that's what does the trick. (laughs) Wait, a referee? So is this more of a ceremony or a competition? Well, I mean, it is an event that happens all over the country, so the exact rules vary from region to region. So at this one shrine in Tokyo, they call it um, Baby Cry Sumo. It's strictly a ceremony. But in some places, the babies actually do compete against each other to see who will cry first, and whoever cries first is declared the loser. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I still can't believe Japan has this competition where babies are pitted against one another by sumo wrestlers. Baby cry sumo. I 
I do love that there is such a thing, but it, it, it's still pretty nuts. Yeah, I mean, it does make you wonder why they even bother with baseball. <laughs> well, I do want to get back to exactly how and why baseball's become so big in Japan. But before we do, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about some surprising features of Japanese culture. So, Will, I know you're itching to explain the origins of Japanese baseball, but first, I just have to tell you about a story I found while researching KFC and Japan's love affair with it. But don't worry, because <laughs> it's actually a baseball story, too. So, uh, you know how in American baseball, we have these curses that crop up from time to time? Yeah, of course. you got the Cubs and their Billy Goat mm-hmm. and the Red Sox and the Curse of the Bambino and all sorts of curses like this. Exactly. And, and uh, apparently that baseball tradition carried over to Japan because they have the same kind of thing. And probably my favorite curse of all time involves a team called the Hanshin Tigers and a statue of KFC founder Colonel Sanders. <laughs> so the story goes, back in 1985, the Tigers won the Japan Championship Series, which is the Japanese equivalent of the World Series. And to celebrate big wins like that, Tigers fans had this tradition where they would gather on a certain bridge in Osaka, read the names of all the winning team members out loud, and then as each name was called, a fan who resembled that player would actually jump off the bridge into the river. I mean, this is already weirder than the Babe Ruth curse. And and I'm a little confused here. So is the whole fan base made up of guys who just look like these players or what? Yeah, I mean, I think it was more of a close enough thing. But right, uh, right. the problem was in 85, none of the Japanese fans looked anything like the team's MVP, who was this American guy named Randy Bass. And so this is where KFC comes in because the fans were desperate to find a Randy Bass lookalike. And when they couldn't find one, they spied the statue of the KFC mascot. It kind of looked close enough. So they Mm -hmm. snatched the colonel, dressed it in a Randy Bass jersey, and chucked it off the bridge into the river as they spoke his name out loud. Wow. And if you were trying to just make up, like, what is the most American name you could come up with? Just like Randy Bass. (laughs) Wait, so so I don't understand. Who put the curse... On the team, is it the owner of the KFC or Randy Bass? I mean, actually, by the way, I just Googled, and sadly, Randy Bass does not look much like the Colonel (laughs) at all. I mean, that makes it better, actually. But (laughs) the curse was from the Colonel himself. So the real Colonel Sanders, I want to say, like, passed away five years earlier. And so according to the legend, his spirit was so pissed about the Tigers fans desecrating his statue that he (laughs) cursed their beloved team to never win a championship again. And it must have been a potent curse because 33 years later, the Tigers have yet to win, despite making it to the playoffs multiple times. Wow. So has anybody ever tried just putting the statue back, you know, just to appease Sanders, I guess? (laughs) Yeah. So once a few years had gone by and it became clear that, you know, the team had been cursed by the ghost of an American chicken salesman. Fans tried all kinds of ways to appease him. So they they apologized to the KFC manager. They they (laughs) mounted a few failed dives to the bottom of the river to try to find the statue. And then in 2009, divers actually found and recovered the colonel's statue. I mean, his glasses and left hand were missing, but otherwise he was pretty intact. So, uh, so the Tigers were hopeful once more. And in fact, the manager of the 1985 team held a press conference where he told the press, when I heard the statue had been found, I felt that losing history had ended. <laughs> I do think if the Cubs could win a series, I have to believe the Tigers will get there sooner or later. But mm-hmm. 
All right, well, if, if the KFC curse tells us anything, it's that baseball is this unexpected source of overlap between Japanese and American culture, of course. And so I did some digging to find out how the Japanese first fell in love with baseball. And the story actually goes all the way back to the 1800s. I know this was during the Meiji era, and this was this period when Japan was moving away from its isolationist roots and sure. trying to adopt these more Western customs as a result of this. Now, one person often gets credited for introducing baseball to Japan, and that's Professor Horace Wilson. And he was an American who taught English at the university in Tokyo. And at some point, I think it was in the 1870s, he started introducing his students to baseball because he decided they needed to get more exercise in their lives. But I mean, is there plenty of sports opportunity in Japan, like martial arts and winter sports? And, you know, we talked about sumo. Yeah, I had thought the same thing, but there was one part of this that I'd not really thought about. So, so here's the thing, that sports native to Japan or super popular in Japan, or that sumo or karate or several others, you know, they're mostly one-on-one activities. Huh. So despite the fact that Japan is a pretty highly group-based culture, for whatever weird reason, the country actually hadn't developed that many team sports of their own. Oh, that's crazy. I, I'd actually never thought about that. So is that one of the things that helped baseball catch on? Definitely. And, and like I said, so much of Japanese culture is built around this idea that the group is the central unit of society. So whether it's your family, your neighbors, or your classmates. So a team sport like baseball was naturally appealing to many people once word of it spread. And it actually spread pretty quickly. So in 1878, just a few years after Horace Wilson taught his students how to play baseball, a Japanese railway engineer organized the very first Japanese baseball team, the Shinbashi Athletic Club Athletics. <laughs> That's an amazing name. Yeah, well, Japan did get better at naming things, and today <laughs> there are several professional baseball teams there. And it's not that different from the American mascot name. So to go along with the Tigers, you've got things like the Buffaloes, the Hawks, the Carp, as well as you know a few mythical creatures like the Dragons and the Giants. But there is something interesting about the naming there. And we mentioned earlier that the team was called the Hanshin Tigers, but Hanshin isn't actually a city. So... I mean, is it a village or a hamlet or something? No, so that's one difference between American and Japanese baseball. Hanshin's actually a railway company. Huh. So while American teams are privately owned and named for cities that support them, Japanese teams are named for the corporations that own them. So while we have the San Francisco Giants, Japan has the Yamiuri Giants, which are named for the Yamiuri newspaper company there. That's pretty interesting, though I do feel like I'm missing a piece of the history here. So how did Japanese baseball go from being a college sport to a national pastime that has these massive companies bankrolling the teams? Well, after 1878, you started to see these other teams popping up in Japan. And for the next 10 years, baseball continued to gain popularity at these Japanese universities. The game mostly stayed on campuses until well after the turn of the century, but then in the early 30s, an American ball player named Lefty O'Doul started touring these Japanese universities with a small team of American players. How baseball of a name is that Lefty O'Doul? <laughs> but... So they were giving lessons to Japanese players and holding these exhibition games every year from 1933 to 1937. And these exhibitions could be massive. So sometimes they played to crowds of more than 60,000 people. Wow. And so 1934 in particular was this very important year for Japanese baseball. And this was the year that Lefty brought over this all-star American team. Now, this team included players like Lou Gehrig, Lefty Gomez, Earl Whitehill, Babe Ruth himself. And so Japan organized its own dream team to face them, but Lefty's crew handily defeated them in all 18 of the games that they played. 
<laughs> I mean, that sounds awful, right? Like, like, why would you want to take up a sport after that sort of humiliation? Well, so there was a moment during those 18 games when something truly special happened. There was a Japanese pitcher named Eiji Sawamura, and he managed to strike out Charlie Geringer, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Jimmy Fox all in a row. So even though the team ultimately lost, Sawamura became this national hero overnight. Like the country saw what was possible, and baseball became more popular than ever. In fact, organizers rode that wave of public enthusiasm, and just two years later, they formed Japan's very first professional baseball team. And as a thank you to Lefty O'Doul, the New York giant who helped spark the baseball fire in Japan, the newly formed team named itself the Giants in his honor. Oh, I love that. And there's actually another unexpected Big in Japan craze that I want to talk about. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A.com. All right, Mango, so it's my turn for a quick tangent. So we both heard the phrase big in Japan, but I just want to take a second to talk about where the phrase actually comes from. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like a music industry term, right? Like, I, I remember bands growing up who didn't hit the charts in the U.S., but would always point to their number ones in Asia, saying they're big in Japan. Yeah, that's right. But there's actually an origin story here. And so the idea goes back to the 50s and the 60s when Japanese youth started getting hooked on British and American music. So, for example, there was this rock band from the States called The Ventures. And by the early 1960s, the band was you know less fashionable in the U.S., so they tried touring Japan. And to their surprise, the country went crazy for them, hmm. quickly becoming the group's most devoted fan base. 
In fact, the Ventures continued to tour Japan every year until 2015. <laughs> and today, their albums have outsold the Beatles two to one there. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So, I mean, I, I guess Big in Japan started out as kind of a compliment. Well, I don't know about a compliment, but it definitely started out the way you and I have been using it. It's just to acknowledge the fact, like, this band is big in Japan. But, you know, by the 70s and 80s, the phrase was just being used more mockingly. And it kind of came to represent the snobbish perception that Japanese consumers were maybe attracted to lesser artists or something like that. But there's actually even a joke at the end of this is Spinal Tap. I don't know if you remember this, but the washed up band reunites for a second chance at fame and goes on this Japanese tour. <laughs> you know, I'd forgotten that. And I, I'd always thought of that line as more of a lie. Like, it's the guy who claims to have a girlfriend at camp in Canada. You know, so you right, never see him. Right. But, uh, I, I guess I never even considered all this cultural condescension. It's pretty interesting. And Maybe that's partially because there are all these great musicians, especially jazz artists, who are a little overlooked in the States, but have been super popular in Japan for decades. And I looked into this a little, and it's kind of amazing. So unlike rock music, which was this late import to Japan, jazz actually came up in the country around the same time it emerged in the U.S. Well, I knew Japan had a thing for jazz. I mean, it comes up all the time in Murakami's novels, mm -hmm. and I think was a big inspiration for him to become a writer in the first place. But, but I actually figured it's had something to do with like World War II and it catching on after that. Yeah, so that would have been my guess too. But I, I read this great interview that NPR did with the jazz historian named E. Taylor Atkins, who explained that the music actually made its way to Japan as early as the 1910s. Oh, wow, that early. So, so how did it get there? Well, so you've got to remember, this is the decade of the Titanic, right? And so there are these luxury ocean liners that are already taking wealthy passengers back and forth across the Pacific, you know, from West Coast ports to places like Manila and Shanghai and, of course, Japan. And it was common for these ships to have orchestras on board as entertainment. So when a Japanese ocean liner stopped at a port in San Francisco or Seattle, the musicians would hop out and check out the local music scene. They'd buy sheet music or records and even visit clubs to hear the locals play. And so what you had were all these Japanese musicians who were learning to play music that was popular in major U.S. cities. And at the time, nothing was more popular than jazz. Oh, wow. And so, so how did the music make it off the boats and into the country? So a lot of these cruise ship musicians also worked in hotel lobbies or restaurants in the off-season. And that gave them plenty of opportunities to practice what they'd picked up abroad. So, you know, they'd play in these locations, and, and then they were simultaneously introducing the country to this new sound. That's pretty cool. All right, so I want to switch gears and, and go back to something we touched on at the top of the show, and that's this idea of Japanese culture as this balancing act. So far, we've talked about it in terms of, like, new technology versus these older traditions, as well as, like, the Western influence and the country's own culture. But Another place we kind of see this balancing act is about the young and the old. And so we alluded to this earlier, but Japan potentially has a crisis on its hands because more than a quarter of the country's 127 million people are 65 or older. And that proportion is actually only expected to rise. Some researchers are predicting that 40% of Japan's population will be over the age of 65 by the year 2060. Hmm. So just to put that in perspective, a Japanese diaper maker named Unicharm reports that adult diapers now outsell baby diapers. That's crazy. And you've got to think the impact on the labor market alone is pretty scary. Yeah, it definitely is. But, you know, it also provides this rare chance to see how an industrialized nation addresses that kind of population shift. 
So for example, in late 2016, Japan began launching programs aimed at coaxing elderly drivers to hand over their driver's license. And that's because even though the overall number of traffic accidents in the country has actually gone down in recent years, the number of accidents involving drivers over the age of 75 has seen a dramatic increase. I think it went from about 7% to 13% over the past decade. Yeah, that's almost double. Crazy. And of course, Japan being Japan, they're not about to forcibly strip the elderly of their licenses. So instead, they've had to get a little creative. So how did they convince people to stop driving? Well, by doing something that would probably work on us too, and that's to give them discounts on ramen noodles. (laughs) I mean, that sounds kind of like a joke, right? It sounds like a joke, but it's not. So this is coming from a district in central Japan. And and basically this restaurant chain, it started to provide these lifelong 15% discounts at all 176 of their locations. And this, of course, to anyone over the age of 75 who's turned in their license. But this isn't the only one. So there's similar incentive campaigns that have launched all over the country. Some offer discounts on public baths or haircuts or bus or taxi fares. And the plan seems to be working. So they've had over a quarter million people in Japan that have given up their licenses in 2016 alone. And this is all thanks to this ramen noodle (laughs) discount, which I'm sure more of these will follow. Well, I mean, I I found another way that chefs are helping Japan cope with its aging population. And that's with something called choke-proof food. So this is something I hadn't really thought about before, but swallowing becomes harder and harder as you age. And Obviously, this becomes an even bigger problem when such a large portion of your population is elderly. In fact, according to a report in the New York Times, more Japanese people now die from choking than they do in all those traffic accidents you mentioned earlier. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. I mean, I can definitely see why there'd be a market for choke-proof food, but how exactly does it work and, and, and what is it? Yeah, so it starts out as regular food items. So you're thinking about things like grilled salmon or dumplings, but... Once the food is prepared, it's thrown into a blender. And I I know what you're thinking. This is way less gross than the story I told you about Lizzie's grandmom, who was having like a toothache. So she blended her salad and pizza into a shake and just kept telling everyone it's all going into the same place. So don't worry. Well, she's not wrong about that. (laughs) But it had to taste gross. But here the food is kept separate and mixed with a new kind of gelling agent. So the gel actually allows the food to be reshaped so that it resembles the way it originally looked. So basically, choke-proof food is this new way of making pureed food more appetizing. It isn't like flavorless mush. Instead, you get something that looks and actually tastes normal with the added (laughs) bonus of being easy to swallow. And if it catches on, like the hope is that Japan's elderly will be able to hold on to their mealtime independence for a little bit longer. Like they can simply head to a restaurant and order their good food prepared in this style. And it's called enge, I guess, which is Japanese for swallowing. That is a pretty great idea, and I I hope that that works for them. But, you know, one of the things I like about these campaigns and how Japan looks out for its elderly is that it reflects the group-based mentality that we were talking about earlier. You know, that kind of all-for-one approach to society, that's something that's instilled in Japanese citizens from the start. I was actually reading this interesting article in The Atlantic about the high level of independence that Japanese kids seem to have. And apparently it's really common to see kids as young as six or seven out on their own in Japanese towns and cities. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about this in our education episode where there's a system to help kids walk alone to school from, I think it's from first grade on, and they're actually walking a few miles, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, sometimes they're heading to or from school, but other times they're actually out running errands for their parents. And it's kind of this rite of passage in Japan In fact, you know how the country is famous for its outrageous game shows and all these weird reality shows? Mm -hmm. Well, 
There's actually a popular show that translates as My First Errand. <laughs> and it's basically this hidden camera show where kids just as young as like two or three are sent out to run an errand for their family. That sounds crazy. So I'm guessing the kids have no idea they're being recorded at that age. Oh, of course not. They have no idea. I mean, the cameramen are right out in the open at some points, but the kids are so frantic or anxious that they never notice the supervision. And so I actually watched an episode and sometimes it's funny, but it can be brutal. But the one I saw had this little boy and his younger sister out on an errand to pick up groceries and they had to go to a few different shops. And already you can see how hard this is, right? For these kids. And they can barely remember the names of the items. I mean, they're tiny and (laughs) This little boy that I was watching, he was so cute, but he had this meltdown once they were like a block away from their house. He actually had to stop and compose himself in an alleyway and then keep going. (laughs) And meanwhile, there's this laugh track and a panel of not judges, but commentators, I guess. And it all feels like some kind of surreal psychological experiment. But my first Aaron, it it isn't some new reality TV thing. It's been on air for almost 30 years now. So, I mean, this sounds equal parts hilarious and bizarre, but how does it relate to being group-minded? Like, if anything, these kids seem independent, right? Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, according to Dwayne Dixon, who's this cultural anthropologist, it's, it's not self-sufficiency that we're seeing, but group reliance. As he puts it, Japanese kids learn early on that ideally any member of the community can be called on to serve or help others. And as you see on the show I watch, there are grocers and shopkeepers, even regular people on the street, and they're all eager to help the kids with directions or counting coins. And the idea is that whether you're a family member or a stranger, young or old, we're kind of, we're all in this together, you know? Oh, I like that. I can actually see why it's popular. So I guess we saw that in the uh, schools episode too, right? Like where uh, students take turns serving lunch to their classmates or... That there aren't any janitors there because all the kids devote 20 minutes each day to cleaning up. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I love that there's this personal responsibility for shared spaces. And it's one of the most pleasantly unusual things about Japanese culture. And, and definitely one I wish we'd emulate more in our own lives here. Yeah, although that, uh, that discount on ramen noodles sounds pretty good too. I would do whatever it takes to get that, <laughs> but uh, including trading in my driver's license. Yeah, but before you head down to see if the restaurant's interested, why don't we work up an appetite with a quick back off? So one thing that's cool about Japan is that they have all sorts of escalators, right? There are massive and beautiful spiral escalators. There's the world's highest escalator there. It's, It's a little terrifying. It's between two skyscrapers and Osaka, I believe, but... My favorite of the escalators and the one I travel to use is actually the Puchikulator. That's what it's called. It's the (laughs) world's shortest escalator. And it's just outside Tokyo, but due to some weird construction flub, it's only about four or five steps tall. So it's it's super short. And it's, uh, I guess it's like half a short flight of stairs. But when I looked into why they even bothered to build it, it was because of this concept of service. So like, Helping people not have to walk down four stairs, even if it's only four stairs, is still important to the culture. That is so weird. I've never heard of this thing before. But, the uh, but that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing that feels unimaginable. So do you know what happens when teachers are sick in Japanese secondary schools? Mm-mm. The school actually doesn't bring in a substitute. Instead, the kids are just expected to stay there and quietly spend the day studying. <laughs> 
and it works. I mean, the kids actually do this. Can you imagine that ever happening in U.S. schools? Absolutely not. So, so I, I think you know I love the bullet train, and I didn't realize this, but it's actually been around for 50 years now. And part of the reason I love it is that it's so efficient. It's rarely more than, I think, 26 seconds late. Like, mm -hmm. it makes the whole country super accessible for tourists. But I especially love how safe it is. And it never seems to crash or have any fatalities like the trains in the U.S. And that's partially because of Dr. Yellow. H have you heard of Dr. Yellow? I have not. So it's a yellow train that travels at full speed, but it actually monitors the rail conditions for safety. And because it doesn't have a published schedule... People just love seeing it. They go wild for it. It's like a lucky charm. And and sometimes they'll actually cheer for it or just smile wide <laughs> when they see it passing by. That's pretty great. All right, well, here's a quick one I think you might like. So did you know that scientists in Japan have come up with a banana with an edible peel? Mm -mm. Now, if you love bananas, I know we both like bananas, but hate all the time it takes to peel them. This is perfect for you. <laughs> Apparently, the process involves freezing and thawing the plant. So you do need to have a pretty cool climate there, of course, but the benefit is that there aren't any natural predators. So you don't have to spray the banana with a ton of pesticides. Oh, that's pretty amazing. So speaking of strange fruit, did you know that they sell individual strawberries in Japan? It's a really popular gift to give someone for Valentine's Day, and they come beautifully packed in these individual cases, but they'll set you back $10 or $11 for a single fruit or oh, wow. up to like $40 or $50 for a carton. So you might be wondering what kind of strawberry is worth that much money. And at least one of the varieties is a kind of strawberry peach hybrid that kind of looks like a giant strawberry, but it has notes of peach in the bite. And there's actually another one that's completely white, but supposedly has kind of a pineapple-y taste. Like, I, I kind of <laughs> want to taste all of these. Oh, me too. All right, well, I think you're going to like this one. I know both of us love following what comes out in the Ig Nobel Awards every year, but did you know that Japanese scientists won a 2016 Ig Nobel Prize for realizing that when you, get this, when you bend over and look between your legs, objects look further away? I mean, this is... <laughs> This is some real science. But apparently your perception changes even though you're at the same distance. But what's funny is that Japan has embraced this scientific victory. And there are some tourism platforms in front of mountains and scenic areas where there are handrails for you to bend over and look at the landscape through your legs. I'm not <laughs> kidding about this. I mean, I guess it's so you can appreciate it from even more of a distance or something. I don't know, that, but I've got to go check these out. That is amazing. And, you know, I love anything that embraces real science. So <laughs> right. I've got to give you this week's trophy. All right. Well, thank you very much. And listeners, if you think we need to know any great science as ridiculous as this or any facts that we forgot to share about Japan today that you love, feel free to share those with us. Part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com. We always love hearing from you. You can also call our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? 
This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.